If you have your Bibles, let's turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. While you're turning there, I'll tell you a little bit about how we came to this particular message for this week. Uh, as many of you know, if you received the email and read it, um, Pastor Mike desired, desired and longed to be here with you and had a message prepared to share with you this week. But unfortunately, uh, he and his wife, of course, contracted uh, COVID. And so I continue want to ask you to pray for them, God's healing and speedy recovery, and that hopefully next week they'll be back with us, if the Lord willing, and uh, return them to us here at the church. So the, the sermon topic that we're dealing with today is not one that was part of this series. Uh, it was not a topic that we had planned or decided to do. Uh, but Pat reminded me that, that we don't run the world, God does. And so as a result, sometimes he makes changes, although we might not want those changes, but nevertheless, we have them. And so this is a new topic that we just came up with this week and uh, decided to address in light of the change of circumstances. So we'll be talking about that. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Today, we'll start off with one verse. We have quite a bit of scripture to cover, but we'll be looking at one verse as the opening and setting the stage for what we're going to talk about. So we find James in one chapter 1, verse 26, writing these words. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. That's the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we uh, thank you for another opportunity to open your word together. I thank you for this community of believers that you have gathered from various walks of life to be together, who all share common faith in your son, who have been indwelt by your spirit, have been washed clean, made new. God, I pray that as we seek to think about your word today, that you would help me to clearly explain it with faithfulness to what was the intent of the author when he penned those words by the spirit and Lord, I pray that uh, you would minister to us. As I ask each time, Lord, I, I want to publicly acknowledge that I cannot rely on any human ability to communicate your word to your people. That we trust not in uh, anything that we do, but in what you do. And we need your help to do that. Lord, if there's anything standing in the way between you and I so that I might serve you in this, in this place and at this time, that would be a barrier, would you remove it? Would you forgive it? Would you cleanse me? And I pray the same things for my brothers and sisters who are listening. Lord, if there's anything in their life that they have left undealt with in your presence that you are well aware of, that would keep them from receiving from you, not from me, but from you, as you minister and work in their thoughts about what is said as they reflect on their lives, would you pardon them as well? Would you contact them, connect with them, Lord? Minister to them for your glory and for their good. I ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So before God called me into a saving relationship with his son, I was just as much a sinner as the rest of anyone in humanity with a corrupted heart, and I lived that way. 
Now, this didn't mean that my parents didn't take me to church. They did that weekly, sometimes more than once a week. Generally, we had all-day church on Sundays, usually twice on Sundays, sometimes with afternoon service, and then I would attend the Bible study on Wednesday nights. It didn't mean that I didn't know Bible verses. I knew some. I had to learn them for Sunday school because if I didn't, well, that meant other things at home that I didn't want to face. So I had to learn Bible verses. But it did not mean that my heart was changed toward God. And as a result of that, my heart was a fertile ground for cultivating ungodly desires. When I was in elementary school, my parents, I think out of desire to move us to a, what they perceived to be a better school district than the one we were currently in, uh, decided to place us into a different school district. And when I was transferred, uh, that meant that I had to be the new kid in school. And when I was in the new kid in school, because kids sometimes are sinful and do sinful little things, uh, when I came to my school uh, with their unregenerate hearts, they found a name for me that was a famy, famous Disney character from the surface. And for whatever reason, I guess because of the way my biology was working out at the time, that name stuck. And so as a result of that, I got teased a lot through elementary. And one of the desires that I desired as a result of being teased was this, this ungodly desire to have man's approval and man's acceptance more than I desired God's approval and acceptance. And that was a desire that I formed in my heart of what I longed for. I probably couldn't have told you that at that time as a child, but reflecting on it back now as an adult, I realized what was going on. And that's what happened. Now, I've shared this other story in the past, but let me share it again for those who might not have heard it to, to explain one of the ways that this desire that I had in my heart worked its way out in my life. So some years later, when I was in middle school, probably about seventh grade, um, it was a day, one of those days when we had come from gym class. And, and on that particular day, for whatever reason was going on, I don't know what was going on, but some of the guys who were in my school that were viewed as popular, let me walk with them at the back of the crowd. And as we were walking down the hallway towards the area where we had to be for class for, the next, for that day or the next period, there was a young lady who I knew that I had gone to school with since elementary school that was passing by. And for whatever reason, I don't know if it was that her clothes weren't in fashion that day of whatever the fashions were. I remember British nights were real big back then during that days for those who remember those tennis shoes and stuff like that. And, uh, and during that period of time, and whatever was going on, they decided to start teasing her because that's what people do sometimes when they're sinful. And so they start teasing her. Uh, that was the leaders in the group. And of course, the rest of us, you know, wanting to be accepted, start laughing as well. We were all laughing, having ourselves a good old time as we walked by. Yeah, 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 you know, at her expense. She was greatly pained by this experience, and because we had known each other through elementary, had been in classes together, at some point later, she found me. And she said to me, I never thought that you would be with them. Because she knew my backstory. And although the words were painful to hear, they were good for, the, good for me to hear, because in that moment, she highlighted my sin. And that was good for me. Now, in light of that, one of the things we realize is that words, we can use them 
in a positive way, that is to build people up, or in a negative way, we can tear people down with our words. And that's why I believe in Proverbs, the writer said this when he wrote these words. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. One Old Testament scholar explains these verses with these words. He says, the purpose of these verses is to warn against being too much in love with one's own words. One should recognize the power of words and use them with restraint. Now, let's take a moment to think about some of the words that have been uttered in history and how they impacted society and influenced others. I'll give you part of a statement, and in your mind, just think about who said that statement and what was the context and what it was said and how it influenced people. It could kind of be like a little game. I'll say it, and you can think about it, and I'll tell you who it is. First statement, give me liberty or give me death. Patrick Henry, Second Virginia Convention during the Revolutionary War. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Abraham Lincoln at the Gettysburg Address. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Martin Luther King Jr., the Lincoln Memorial. Those who want to live, let them fight. And those who do not want to fight in this world of eternal struggle do not deserve to live. Adolf Hitler, in his third speech after his rise to power, I'm fighting so that I can die a martyr and go to heaven to meet God. Our fight is now against the Americans. Osama bin Laden. Peace begins with a smile. Mother Teresa. Last but not least, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus of Nazareth. Words are powerful because they can impact and influence the minds and lives of individuals. We probably all have stories where we can think of where that has happened in our lives. But as Americans, this becomes extremely pertinent to us because we have been gifted in a way that not every citizen of every country of the world is. We have what we refer to as the freedom of speech. Recall the words of the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. 
Now, I know when we raise the topic of freedom of speech, there are all kinds of things for those who are culturally savvy, in which you know that there are cultural forces that are trying to restrict, and for those who know history, there seem to have always been different cultural forces with different cultural agendas to restrict the freedom of speech. But let's assume that we still have it because it seems that we do despite the other forces that would seek to restrict it in one way or another for their advantage. And in light of the reality that we know that words have power for those of us who love God, who have faith in his son, how do we take this gift that we have been afforded that not everyone in the world has and use it in a way that brings glory to God and does good to man. Well, I believe the Holy Spirit through the writers of the New Testament direct us in a godly way to use this gift of freedom of speech. Today, I want to look at two early church writers, the Apostle James and the Apostle Paul, and see what are some of the things they had to say about how believers ought to use this gift that they have from God as it pertains to speech. We'll begin with James and then we'll end up with Paul because James, this is a main theme in his letter. Let's return to the text that we started off with, James chapter 1, verse 26. James said, of course, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but, de but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Now, we have to drop back a little bit to kind of get the context of what James is doing. James has already instructed the believers to accept the word of God with humility and to ensure that they put the word that they have received into practice in their lives. For without practice of the word of God in their lives, James says, we're merely hearers in the word and ultimately living a life of deception about our spiritual condition. And then we arrive at this verse. And here James gets extremely practical as he shares one of the three ways that he wants to emphasize in the letter that believers ought to put the word of God into practice in light of the struggles that this church was facing by the conflict it seems like they were having amongst themselves. Today I just want to focus on the one that deals with speech. And by here, when I'm talking about speech, I'm not just referring to our verbal communication, but I'm thinking more holistically about all the ways we communicate, whether that be on social media platforms, whether that be via emails, or whether that be in good old-fashioned fashion letter writing, and all the ways that we use our words, that's what I'm thinking about when I say speech. James ultimately comes out, and what he says is that the believer needs to tame their tongues, or rather, control their speech toward others. He's already said in verse 19 that the disposition of the believer ought to be one in which you want to be quick to hear and slow to speak. I'm always reminded of Pastor Paul when we come to this verse because he has shared on numerous occasions what his grandmother taught him. There's a reason why God gave you two ears and one mouth. And I think that's a good way of putting what James said. And he tells us the reason why in this verse. James says, anyone who makes the claim to be religious, that, that, that they have 
had a true religious experience, that they're trying to live a life that is devoted to God, that they believe that they're living a life that is devoted to God, uh, that they've come under the, the influence of the gospel, and he says then they need to submit that claim to these three tests, and one being the control of speech. And James says, if you receive the word of God and you claim to follow him and live your life uh, in obedience to him, and you claim that you're, you're, you're religious, you're devoted to God, but you exercise no care in the words that you use toward others, then ultimately you are just deceiving yourself and your religion, your devotion to God is worthless. It has no meaning. James seems to think that what we do with our speech is so important. It's a critical aspect of our discipleship of following Jesus. Because as he's going to let us know, our speech is simply an indicator of our true spiritual state. And that's just him opening up his letter. Now we come to chapter 3 where he exposes this more as he talks about this topic. Let's go there to chapter 3. We'll read the verses here, and then I'll try to pull out the main ideas. Chapter 3, we'll actually pick up at verse 2. James says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they can obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Now, James covers a lot of ground here. His uh, reasoning is dense. He has drawn upon illustrations that were common during his day when it comes to this subject matter of which most people were familiar with. But let me see if I can summarize just the main ideas of what James is getting at in this dense text. So the tongue, which is a representative of our speech, our use of words, he says, is a small member of our bodies. However, its impact in our lives and the lives of others can be used, huge, because our 
words can affect the direction and course of not only our lives, but those who are our hearers, those who we influence. And James says that our speech happens to be one of the most difficult areas in our lives to control. And because it is, that makes it extremely dangerous because we're so quick and easy to stumble into sin in a variety of ways. One of the examples that he gives in the text is the duplicity in our speech, how we're almost fork-tongued. In one sense, and in some occasions, we engage in the highest form of speech when we praise God and turn right around and then engage in the lowest form of speech and criticize and insult those who are made in his likeness and in his image. Take a moment just to think about all the ways that people sin with their words. They lie to one another. They make thoughtless comments. They boast arrogantly. They gossip about others. They slander one another. They insult each other use vulgarity, they communicate with angry speech that shows no respect for the other person, they complain, and they judge others in an unrighteous manner that is not godly. And those might be just some of the ways that we sin with our speech. Consider what happens in the context of when people are in conflict with one another and how the speech changes from uh, perhaps uh, what opens up as a discussion to become a personal attack against the other person. And people quickly resort to judgmental attitudes and they communicate that with their words. James realizes this and he says in almost a pessimistic way, I don't know that we'll ever come to a point on this side of heaven that we'll reach perfection when it comes to taming the tongue. But that does not mean that we don't continue on the path of sanctification. We must continue to pursue it. So how are you doing when it comes to your words? You've received the word of God, hopefully with humility, but is your life reflecting that? We find James's final statement, at least his final major statement. There are some other passages that we're not touching on that deal with speech, but his final main passage in chapter 4 of his letter. Let's look at that together. James writes, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He is a he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So what does James mean by these words? Most likely, James has in mind Leviticus 19 as he reflects on that command to love one's neighbor that Jesus quotes as the second great commandment. James is in a context where he's writing to a church that seems to be broken apart and in conflict of using speech to criticize one another, to slander one another, and to accuse each other and say all kinds of things to demean one another. And James says when we communicate in that way, we have violated 
the word or law of God. That in some kind of way, when we use our words in ungodly ways, as James has laid out in some of the ways that I've already stated, he says, in that moment, you violate the command to love your neighbor. And when you violate that command, ultimately, you do not obey the command to obey what God has said. And when you do that, or when I do that, we show the world that ultimately, in the fact of us not obeying what God has said, we show that we deny its authority in our lives. And in that moment, his reasoning is, if you and I disobey the law of God, and that is we don't obey it when it comes to loving our neighbor, when we exercise our words in a way that are ungodly, in that moment, then, we move from being one who is a doer of the law to one who is a judge. Why am I a judge? Because I have judged in my life that God's word has no authority over me. And so I have now moved myself from position of obeyer to judge. James ultimately says, when I shift in that position, I step into an arena that belongs only to God. Because God is only the one who is judge. So when I use my words to hurt others in whatever way that is that I might use them, I stop obeying God and stand myself in God's place because I've chosen to say, God, your word has no power or authority in my life. Now, James here is not restricting the correcting speech that is needed for the Christian walk for our edification He's talking about us using words in a way that violates the command to love our neighbor. New Testament scholar Dr. Moose sums it up this way in James' arguments. Christians who have been transformed by the Spirit of God should manifest the wholeness and purity of the heart in consistency and purity of speech. Or as Jesus said in his statements in the Gospel of Matthew, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Jesus says that the words that come out of our mouths are simply a reflection of what our spiritual state is inside in our hearts. We've said what we said because that's who we are on the inside. And our words are simply just reflecting that to the world around us. Susie Hawkins, uh, who was a, a Bible student, was writing a study on this, um, and she talked about James chapter 3, and she recalled the story that she had seen on 2020 back in 2006. It was a story about a little girl from Afghanistan who had been badly wounded in a bombing. A plastic surgeon who had great means, who was from uh, the state of California, I'm not sure how he got involved with her or found out about her, but decided to, he and his wife had compassion and decided to intervene in her life and to bring her back to the States uh, and to be able to use their influence and his knowledge to be able to hopefully help her through extensive surgeries find some sense of normalcy in life. Susie described that in one of the broadcasts, when they showed one of the early pictures of this young girl from Afghanistan, she had been so 
badly burned that she said her neck and her skin just looked like it had melted onto her body. And the broadcast went on to share about what was going on and what had happened in the family and how they connected and began to show at different stages some of the surgeries. And after one extensive major surgery, uh, the doctors were there and a little girl was bandaged up and they were hoping after this surgery she would be able to speak again because her face had been swollen, her tongue had been swollen and she had not been able to talk. And as they were removing the bandage, they were all in the room eagerly waiting, hoping to hear what our first words had been. Well, while she had been resting during this time, like most of us when we're in the hospital, uh, if we're able to or we're visiting there and you're there sitting in the room, most of, most of the only thing that you can do when you're in the hospital is watch TV, right? And so she had been watching American TV, and as they removed all the bandages and they asked her to see if she could speak, she said these words, who let the dogs out? Now, of course, they all collapsed in laughter because for them, that meant that her spirit was alive and well. And despite her body being marred, what was going on internally was evidenced by the words that she said. And that's James's point, that our speech is an indicator of the condition of our internal world, what the Bible often calls the heart. It's with those things in mind that we come to the writings of the Apostle Paul, who speaks into the context of two churches and brings some other thoughts that we need to consider and add to what James has said. First, we go to the letter to the church at Ephesus in chapter 4, as Paul gives his admonition after his doctrinal section about how believers ought to live out the truth of what they have heard and believed and received through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 29. Paul says in the Christian community, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is as good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Paul here reiterates what James has already stated to us, that believers are those who have faith in Jesus Christ, who love God and desire to live in obedience to him ought to tame their speech. He not only refers to foul language here, but any type of speech that does not build up those who are in the body of Christ, which he calls here unprofitable speech. It doesn't benefit the spiritual life of another person or their walk with Jesus Christ. Any of that stuff ought not to be spoken between believers in the church. He says, instead, what you ought to put your attention on is whatever way you can use your words for the benefit of other people's spiritual lives so that they can continue to follow God. Because when we don't use our words in that way and use it in other ways, it ultimately hurts the body of Christ and does something far more important that is somewhat surprising. He says, it grieves the spirit. Paul has already introduced the spirit earlier in the chapter one and said about the spirit that when you place faith in Jesus, when God called you into relationship with his son, he gave you the gift of his spirit 
to indwell you and to seal you, to show that you belong to God, who walks with you through life and who observes and hears everything you say and every way you use your words and communicate. And whenever we use our words in ways that are ungodly, it grieves the Spirit. And he's the one that God has given us to show us that we belong to him until Christ appears. The Spirit is listening. The Spirit is watching. The Spirit is observing how we're using our words. He's always paying attention. There's no conversation that you've said or done in private that he's not privy to. And how you decide to use your speech either makes him glad or it grieves him. And Paul says, watch what you say. The Spirit is listening. He goes on to, in Colossians, the letter to the believers in Colossae to give us another thought that we need to take into our account when it comes into talking about words. We find it in chapter 3 of Colossians. Paul writes, but now you must put, a, put them all, all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, there's a lot here, but let me just try to hit some of the main ideas so when God called you into relationship with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you heard the message about his holy life, about his death for your sins and his resurrection from the dead. Not only did he wash you clean and, and forgive you for the wrongs you had done and give you his spirit, but the scriptures tell us that he also made you new on the inside. What Paul argues is that there is a way of speaking that society uses that should not be used by those who are new on the inside because those ways of speaking no longer fit the person that you are. In this context, the imagery that he uses is like old, dirty clothes that need to be taken off and put to the side because those no longer fit you as a child of the king because God has given you new clothes that match your identity as one who is a brand new creation. Things like speaking the truth in love, encouraging others, confessing sins, praying for one another, praising God, having a thankful attitude, showing uh, others, honor to others with your words. Those types of things are fitting for you and I as a Christian. And Paul says when you use words uh, in ways or speech in ways that are ungodly, that have, you have been warned against in Scripture, you're acting in a way that is inconsistent with who God has made you to be. You're no longer that person you used to be, and those ways of speaking don't match who God has made you to be. And thus you need to change your speech to match your identity in Christ. God gave you a new heart, and from that new heart should flow new speech. 
Now, you may be asking in your own life if this is a struggle that you have in your life as you considered some of those things that I raised up, slander, gossip, whatever thing you might find a weakness in in your speech. And you've thought about it, and it's in your mind, and you're saying to yourself, even though I'm going to leave here today, I'm probably this afternoon going to struggle in this particular area when it comes to my speech. Maybe it's going to be when you sit down to get on your keyboard, a text message you'll send, and you're like, I'm going to struggle. How do I overcome in this area? I believe the psalmist points us in two good ways. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. One writer said this, as with Proverbs 2, 10 through 11 and Colossians 3, 16, these passages show us that the mind which stores up scripture has its taste and judgment educated by God. That when I invest time in saturating my mind and my inner life with the word of God, it has a way of changing those things that I find pleasing. And it has a way of helping to inform my judgments when I want to communicate with others. But that only works if my mind has been saturated with the word of God. Psalm 141.3 lets us know about another important aspect when it comes to overcoming the struggle of what is so easy to find our way into sin. The writer says, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. The psalmist cries out for God to engage in this activity of helping him exercise self-control. Lord, help me be conscious of the things that I say. Help me to recognize the impact that they're going to have on others and how they're going to influence them. Think back to what Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, as he quoted the fruit of the Spirit. You remember in that list that one of the things that the Spirit produces in the life of a believer for those who walk by the Spirit is self-control. And the understanding is that if you're walking by the Spirit, your speech should come under control as well. Now, it doesn't mean that we're going to always get this right. There are going to be moments when we fail, and the Scriptures have pointed out for how we're to do that. We're to confess that, to repent of that, and turn away from those actions. And God has given us another gift. is those people sitting right next to you, the body of Christ. We're not just here to warm up the seat next to you, to enjoy your presence at church. We've been put here for a reason. God has brought you into a family. And part of being in the family means that we're here to encourage one another and help hold each other accountable so that we can, can continue to walk down this path of sanctification. God expects that we will be involved in one another's lives because we're all part of the same family. At the beginning of this message, I shared with you how, uh, as an unbeliever, I sinfully desired to be accepted and approved by man more than I wanted God's approval, despite the fact that I went to church each weekend and I learned some Bible verses. My heart was set on man's approval. Another one of the ways that this kind of worked out in my life had to do with when I was in middle school, it had to do with my own speech. 
So one of the things that we did in the morning when we got ready to go to school, because of the way my neighborhood was designed, the bus driver entered on one side, and, and it was a closed community, so you came down to the back, made like a big U, and then you headed out towards the school, which was about 45 minutes away. Uh, some were closer, but in middle school, it was probably about, I guess, about 20 minutes away. Uh, and there were streets along each side. And so in the mornings, uh, if you were not as quick to get up on time or not as timely or punctual, then what you would do in the morning is you would, if you missed the bus on one side of the street, you would run down to the other side of the street so that you could catch the bus. So in the mornings, if we were doing well and we were going down to the closer side of the street to which we live, we would go down, and in the mornings, we would hang out there at the bus stop. And one of the habits that had kind of happened with the boys, and there were several of us there, when all of the parents had dropped us off and said their goodbyes and walked away, one of the things that, that the young middle school boys liked to do was use profanity because it made us feel like adults. And because uh, I enjoyed wanting to be part of being accepted into society, I started using profanity as well. And I got to the point that I started using so much profanity in middle school that one morning when I was out and I was talking and I was using so much profanity, one of the other middle school boys looked at me and said, stop. Man, that doesn't even sound right with the way you're talking. That's so bad. Now, you would think in a moment like that, after you have been rebuked by a peer about your language, you would take that under advisement. Consider your actions and turn from them. I decided in my heart, because I desired to be accepted and I thought this was a good thing, I decided, you know what, I'm just going to get better at it. I'll just use it more, and I'll work out the kinks. And so profanity became my way of speaking in life. Followed me all the way into my college years. And if you had known me back then, you probably wouldn't believe the kind of person and the way I spoke. But somewhere in my college years, God saved me. And one of the first things that God did in my life was when I came to faith in Jesus Christ and I listened to the word of God, my desire for how I spoke started to change. And that way of speaking no longer felt right because I felt dirty on the inside. And as a result of that, I stopped speaking that way. Stopped using those words. Found other ways to communicate. Four or five years later after God saved me when I was in seminary, I was in Dallas. I ran into an old friend from college who I hadn't seen in years. And I decided, hey, let's catch up. You know, let's go out to dinner. Let's hang out, see how things are. And we went out to dinner and hung out. It was catching up. Like, uh, it was a friend of mine. She, was, she had been dating uh, another guy that I knew in college, and I thought they had gotten married, but they didn't, and I was trying to find out what happened, and we talked about all that and changes in life. And in that process, I got to share about what had happened in my life and how God had interacted with me, how I had come to faith in Jesus, and how God had radically changed my life. So we got near the end of the evening after dinner, and we were getting ready to part ways. And un unasked for, unprompted, she said to me, you know, you are really different than what I remember in college. You sound so much different than the person that I used to know. You have changed 
so much. And you, I can hear that in the way you talk. It is so drastically different. In that moment, there was a, a, a thankfulness in my heart that someone else who had known me as an unbeliever could see in my life God's grace and how he had transformed a sinner into a saint. Why was there a change in my life, in my speech? Because God had transformed my old wicked heart that desired the approval of man to a new heart that had a new desire that desired to want to have him be pleased. And when my desires changed, my speech changed as well. Brothers and sisters, I started off by telling you that you have been gifted in this country with the gift of the freedom of speech. But God bids you bring it under the rubric of the law of love. Remember what Paul says, do not use your freedom as a license for sin. But in word or deed, do everything for the glory of God. And I would add to that, as other places seem to do, use your words to edify those who are made in his image. Brothers and sisters, what you say is simply a reflection of who you are. So be careful that what comes out shows that you belong to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I pray that you challenge us. That, Lord, there is a way that you want us to live. And, Father, I thank you that this is, is not, as James said, an overnight process. You give us new desires by your spirit as you work in our hearts. And over time, you change us. Probably some who are here today have that exact same testimony in their lives. If we had known them before you had called them into relationship with your son, we would be shocked. But it's just a testimony of how powerful your grace is in our lives to take a sinner and transform them. Fathers, Lord, there may be areas where this is an area that they still struggle in. This is an area that they need to pursue sanctification. Help them by your spirit as they meditate, memorize, studying your word. And they recognize that this, like other areas, is a matter of discipleship that needs to be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ as well. And it's not something that has no meaning. It's not important. James says it's extremely important. So help us to treat it that way. Whether that be how we communicate verbally or whether, Lord, it is through the text messages, social media, through emails, through writing letters, whatever form our words take. Lord, let it be in a way that glorifies you and is a benefit to those to whom we're communicating with. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.